Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. This week on Talk Nation Radio, Christopher Simpson on the media's coverage of war and peace, and Kathy Kelly on the state of U.S. empire and imperialism. They will both be speaking at No War 2016, a conference being organized in Washington, D.C. You can go to worldbeyondwar.org to sign up to attend or to find out how to watch the live stream at home. It's my great pleasure to welcome to Talk Nation Radio this week, Chris Simpson. Christopher Simpson is a professor of journalism at American University. He's known internationally for his expertise in propaganda, democracy, and media theory and practice. He has won national awards for investigative reporting, historical writing, and literature. His books include Blowback, The Splendid Blonde Beast, Science of Coercion, National Security Directives of the Reagan and Bush Administrations, Universities and Empire, Comfort Women Speak, and War Crimes of the Deutsche Bank and Dresdner Bank. Simpson's work has been translated into more than a dozen languages, and Chris Simpson will be speaking at the upcoming No War 2016 conference, which you can find and sign up to attend or watch the live stream at worldbeyondwar.org. Chris Simpson, welcome to Talk Nation Radio. Thank you, David. Uh, so what uh, you'll be doing this uh panel together with Gareth Porter and Sam Husseini under the, the banner of remaking the mass media for peace. Uh, what's wrong with the mass media as it is for peace, and, and what do we need to do about it? Well, that's a complex question. I'm really looking forward to this panel. I, I think uh, uh, Sam and Gareth uh, are, are great speakers and have very interesting things to say, uh, and a lot of experience in this area, too. Uh, so I think it'll be a great panel. There's no quick or easy answer to remaking the media for peace or, for that matter, anything else. Uh, but um, uh, what we are able to do at this stage is to identify the problem more clearly. And part of the problem is is that the media uh, reproduces itself, so to speak, from generation to generation, from year to year. And it does that by reinforcing some of the attitudes and myths that are built into our society and our culture. Um, That's part of their business plan. That's part of how they stay in business. So one part of the answer to remaking the media is to find ways to break its present cycle of self-reproduction. And what are those myths that are being uh, reproduced, and how do they generate good business for media companies? Well, my guess is is, is that your listeners are well aware that the myth of manifest destiny, the myth of American exceptionalism, the myth that the United States is uh, supposed to save the world, and and uh, that any sort of uh, uh, war crime or crime against humanity that is committed during saving the world is therefore justified. Uh, the, uh, the myth that um, a essentially infinite arms budget 
uh, is uh, actually contributes to security, either in terms of relations among nations or, or uh, you know, even security of day-to-day life in, in many parts of the world. So it's, and that's, you know, those are just the ones that, that occur to me off the top of my head. There's quite a number of others. Yeah. Um, and uh, the, uh, these myths interconnect and tend to reinforce each other. Uh, so that that um, and and you have whole candidacies for president, uh, at least in my view, uh, from both parties that uh, rely heavily on these men, yeah. both major parties. I'm referring to. Yeah, um, yes, of course. When you talk about uh, the United States, you know, saving the entire world, I, I'm reminded this week I've been reading about U.S. military threats to defend U.S. troops in Syria against Syrian aggression against U.S. troops who have invaded mm-hmm. Syria. Is that, is that a storyline that could happen in, in the media of any other country on Earth other than the United States? Um, that's, a, that's an interesting question. Uh, I, yes, I think that there are other countries where that, that type of storyline or narrative, as it's sometimes called, uh, could uh, could be successful, and and uh, um, the uh, uh, Russia, for example, that type of narrative uh, is used very fairly frequently. China occasionally is the same sort of thing. Russia and uh, China have troops in foreign countries that have been illegally invaded and make are making war in those foreign countries, and then they accuse the foreign country of aggression. When it yes, well, certainly that's happened historically. There, there really is no doubt about that. Um, and in the in the present circumstance uh, in uh, Ukraine, uh, there's there's quite a complicated situation in, in which uh, there are indeed Russian troops that are officially denied, but nevertheless actually there. Um, in the Chinese case, do you mean uh, in Crimea that, or in other parts? Uh, well, in Crimea and in, in uh, eastern Ukraine. Um, well, you it, can, it, I, I mean, just in in Crimea, they're not officially or otherwise denied. They're openly there under a treaty that pre-exists the, the the military coup that never shows up in the US media as we're told that uh, you know the Russians uh, invaded Crimea well i i get your point that and and i do agree with you to the extent that there are numerous um uh this propaganda battles back and forth between uh big powers and even among small powers from time to time uh, the uh, in the specifics of the Korean, uh, excuse me, the Crimean case, uh, the uh, the legalities of uh, Russian occupation of Crimea are at best questionable. Uh, the uh, certainly uh, that I feel that uh, that there was a more peaceful way to. Uh, reconcile uh, uh, Russian interests in that region uh, than sending in troops. Uh, the, and I think that if, had, if, it was the, if the United States had moved into Crimea in that sense, or the United States had moved into, let's say, Nicaragua, 
or backed proxy groups in Nicaragua in that sense, then the peace movement in the United States would would understand perfectly well that it was aggression. Um, the well, I, you know, I oppose, Chris, I opposed Russia sending in more troops to Crimea at the time, but it had troops there under a treaty that allowed more troops in. Uh, you were dealing with a military coup government in Ukraine that was, you know, immediately uh, cracking down on, you know, speaking the Russian language and so forth. And the people of Crimea voted to rejoin Russia. I can't imagine a popular vote in Nicaragua where the people vote to rejoin the United States, which Nicaragua had been a part of for centuries. It doesn't, it doesn't seem like the same case to me. No, it's not identical. You're right. It is not identical. We can argue this longer if you think it's really in, in the interest of your, of your listeners or, or the goals that we're both trying to reach. But the point that I'm trying to make and that, that uh, I'm not ashamed to make is that there are more than one imperial power on the planet today, and that that is a serious problem for everybody concerned. One of the problems of this type of the of the 21st century type of imperialism is that aggressive moves are blamed on somebody else. That's what you see with the, with the incident that you raised in the Syrian case. Uh, you see other incidents of the same sorts in other parts of the world. Uh, that doesn't mean that other powers, say, for example, the United States in the Syrian case, have a license to send in troops or to try to reorder the situation in their own interest. It does suggest that the way forward in that kind of situation where there's a multipolar world, where multiple countries are uh, perpetrating aggressive acts is that some form of international law is the only way forward to stabilize those types of conflicts. What, what do you make of the growth of independent media, online media, um, the, uh, the, the use of, of international and, and small and new media? I mean, it seems that, that young people, in some cases, who are turning to new media are much better informed uh, than older people, have almost exact opposite views of Israel-Palestine, for example, in the United States along generational lines. Are, are, are they going to stick with good media? and we're going to have better politics, or are they going to grow old and uh, switch to bad media and bad opinions? How does that work? Well, uh, I I think it's great when uh, independent democratic media emerges. I support that, And, and I think that to the extent that that is available, I think it's a wonderful resource. That said, um, the... Media, mm, I don't think it's, it's easy to predict exactly what people are going to do uh, in, the, in the present. Uh, say, for example, in the, in the contest between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, I think that, that Trump surprised an awful lot of people and an awful lot of liberals in particular with his naked appeals to racism and that and that, that could... Mm, uh, enlist, if you will, um, enough people to vote for that sort of thing 
that he became the presidential candidate for that particular party. Um, so there's a struggle over media. There's a struggle over how we reproduce society from year to year and from generation to generation. Media plays an important role in that. There's a lot of people out there, for example, um, Institute for Public Accuracy and FAIR, Center for Democracy and Media, and uh, Media and Democracy, rather, and many other groups. So those are just uh, a few that come to mind that are working on breaking the link between uh, big money interests, between big military interests, and so forth, on the one hand, and the content of media on the other. They challenge uh, particularly mainstream media, and they do a good job of it, too. But will they succeed? Well, that remains to be seen. This is a long struggle. It's not... uh, uh, I, I think there are people out there who say, oh, well, because there's the Internet... Therefore, we will automatically, or at least nearly automatically, move into this utopian situation where there's a a sharing economy and peace will reign and so forth. I don't think that 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 is at all guaranteed. I think that there's a very difficult time ahead. And uh, uh, that concerns me a lot, frankly. Uh, but uh, the the right thing to do, the the encouraging thing to do, the ex- the exciting thing to do, is is to enter into that um, uh, struggle and uh, uh, and have an effect on it. Well, we, it is a, it is an enormous project, and we could talk about it for hours. And we fortunately will have a chance to talk about it at greater length at the upcoming conference that people can find at worldbeyondwar.org, where Chris Simpson will be speaking together with Sam Husseini and Gareth Porter on this topic. Christopher Simpson, thank you for your books and the work you do, and for coming on Talk Nation Radio. It's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. It is my great pleasure to welcome back to Talk Nation Radio, Kathy Kelly. She doesn't need a long introduction, known to all of you as one of our leading peace activists uh, with her organization, Voices for Creative Nonviolence. Uh, she is doing great peace work all around the world, and she will be speaking at No War 2016, the conference being organized by World Beyond War. Go to worldbeyondwar.org. Kathy Kelly, welcome to Talk Nation Radio. Well, thank you, David, and I'm certainly looking forward to the World Beyond War conference as well. I am looking forward to seeing you and everybody else there. One of the leading architects, as many describe him, of modern U.S. imperialism uh, has sort of kind of said, forget it, we aren't going to dominate the whole world after all. Do I have that right? The sort of kind of is important. (laughs) (laughs) You know, Brzezinski... It's certainly um, somebody with a long, long history of advocating wars. It's so interesting in his article, he, uh, which appears in the American Interest, in the it was actually an April 2016 article. Uh, he gives a list of um, consequences of war and pillage dating back to the 16th century. Now, obviously, it's a selective list, but you get the idea that here's somebody who's really sick and tired of war. But I don't know that he's necessarily sick and tired of controlling other people's lands and other people's resources to suit u 
U.S. interests. It's just that it seems at this point, realistically, he is convinced that the U.S. cannot any longer be the unipolar controller, that that sun is setting. And so as, as a sort of fallback, the U.S. should make uh, a new coalition, a new alignment with China and Russia. Now, it's important that in that effort, he clearly doesn't think that um, military strategies are the top drawer ways to form a new coalition. So I think he would be against the poking toward a new Cold War that the U.S. has done on the borders of Russia and, and with the uh, DIU islands in uh, offshore China. But he doesn't necessarily want to replace the U.S. attitude that other countries should subordinate themselves to serve U.S. interests. So I, I have a lot of hesitation about that article being celebrated as a you know a tilt toward an end to Brzezinski's advocacy for for war and dominance. I think he's the new form of dominance. But we should definitely pay close attention and come right up and say. That's right. War doesn't work. We need completely non-lethal means. We need to say to the weapons people, now it's your turn to retire and make new things that people could use and stop pushing uh, Japan and certainly China and Russia and other countries into continuing to use war as the means to solve problems. So, so Brzezinski is not about to uh, join the Afghan peace volunteers, but he he does seem to have made some sort of a shift, right? This is the guy that is usually credited with having admitted uh, to U.S. operations way back in the 70s to seeking to pull the Soviet Union into a disastrous war in Afghanistan. And he was so unrepentant. At one point he said, uh, what's to regret? Oh, you know, he, he he acknowledges we pulled the Soviets into Afghanistan. Why should I be sorry? I, well, I don't know if he's sorry now or not, but I sure wish that he would read the article that the New York Times recently published on Bamiyan, a province in Afghanistan where women farmers form an incredibly uh, brave union to say, look, we're going to make our land work better for us. And they start to plan a, plant a variety of crops. And David, you were over with the Afghan Peace Volunteers and Hakim, and Hakim was just about run out of town in the Bamiyan province because he had uh, strongly made the suggestion that a variety of crops might be planted, and some of the young people had started to do that. Well, now the women are doing it, and they're planting a variety of different potato crops, and they're slowly, slowly um, making gains on survival. Well, this is the kind of thing that the United States could have been working toward all along. Right now, if you were to calculate the plots of land devoted to growing poppy in Afghanistan, it would be equivalent, and this is according to the Secretary, um, John Sopko, the, the fellow in charge of the Iraq um, Reconstruction Plan, the supervisor. he said that it, that amount of land would equal 440,000 United States football fields, including the end zones. So under the United States, invasion, occupation, surge, and uh, dumping of billions and billions of dollars into both the military and non-military spending, uh, Afghanistan has become a narco state in which the poppy production is hopelessly entangled into the government, into everyday life, into their economy. But yeah. here are some women in Afghanistan, in the Bamiyan province, they're Hazara women, the most discriminated against group, trying their best to help their children survive. 
could the U.S. be supporting that kind of thing rather than continuing to line the pockets of all of these various weapon-making companies that are experimenting with all kinds of uh, aerial surveillance and uh, aerostat tethered blimps and different ways to to do targeted assassination in Afghanistan? Certainly we could, but it takes just a, a dogged, persistent effort on the part of regular, ordinary U.S. people to say, we want to continue citizen-to-citizen diplomacy. We'll go over and find out what the people in Russia think about going to war. We'll try to report on the consequences of war by going over to visit the Afghan peace volunteers. And we'll keep on holding walks and vigils and demonstrations to oppose the militarism in this country. Well, I'm, I'm looking forward on the International Day of Peace, September 21st, to being on a call uh, with, I hope you, and with the Afghan peace volunteers uh, about alternatives to war that people can uh, listen to on live stream. And I'll get a, a, a link up on my website and I imagine on, on yours, uh, vcnv.org. Uh, I, I think, Kathy, it may have been Gorbachev, it was some Russian several years ago now, who said uh, the United States has made all the mistakes the Soviet Union made in Afghanistan and moved on to inventing new ones. Uh, it, it, that seems to be the case. And uh, Brzezinski, I, it was several years ago now, I, I heard speak uh, on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C., uh, and Brzezinski proposed uh, some numbered list, maybe a dozen things that needed to be done in Afghanistan. And number one, which he said we would just touch on briefly because it wasn't controversial at all, was, of course, to continue the war in Afghanistan. Uh, and somewhere down the list, like number eight or nine, was build an oil pipeline through Afghanistan. That's a very important to have that in the list. And, and I questioned him about both, starting with the first one, and I said the polls are are absolutely 50-50 on get out or stay in, Af- in Afghanistan as they were at that time. It's the definition of controversial. How can you say there's no controversy over stay in Afghanistan? I mean, that that seems to be who that guy was. I don't know if it's who he still is. Well, I think the audience that he thinks counts are certainly the 1%, a very small elite group, and unfortunately they do manipulate tremendous control. It's so interesting to me that on the 21st, these kids over in Afghanistan, I shouldn't say kids, they're growing up now, and there are many of them. Yeah, they're not youth anymore, right? Uh, How does that happen? But they're arranging to have um, a connection with someone from each of the 34 provinces, conscious that the country is a very, very young country. 65% of the people living there are under 21 years of age, and they see a future for themselves in overcoming the, the divisions and the, the, the fighting that have gone on so relentlessly. But, you know, how many weapons have poured into that country, compliments of the United States? I mean, you know, you hear about every soldier who is trained, you know, take care of your rifle, memorize the serial number, have that rifle polished. Well, uh, 1.4 million uh, rifles have gone missing in Afghanistan and Iraq, and that's why people can arm themselves to the teeth and get involved in gun battles so easily, because there's you know, such desperation, and the same thing, I think, continues to rip Iraq apart. And it's, it's really been instructive for me to stay in touch with Peace News, the um, Peace newspaper produced in the United Kingdom, which uh, is quite popular in Europe, maybe not so easily read here, but Milan Rai has two articles in their latest edition, which talk about the Chilco inquiry and show that what the United States and Britain both wanted in Iraq was essentially Saddamism without Saddam. They wanted 
a military strong man, or uh, they probably would be saying a strong man in that case, or they wanted some kind of a, a grouping that uh, wouldn't at all be involved in creating democracy, but instead be able to get the country under control, but without them having to deal with any of the bombs uh, resistant to U.S. control. And I think that uh, that may be what Brzezinski would see as desirable, to be able to find some new means of something like empire, a Sino-Russo-U.S. control, using sort of second-string states, such as Egypt, uh, Saudi Arabia, the United States can start to get more control over how they use all the weapons we sell them, uh, Turkey, and, and other strong-armed states. And, and, and so I think the, the hope in different people worldwide who don't want that vision, who don't want to support that, linking up with one another, becomes very, very important, and that's why World Beyond War is so important. Uh, and Afghan Peace Volunteers and Voices for Creative Nonviolence. Uh, the, the number of guns is an incredible number. Uh, people imagine these places like Afghanistan as just inherently violent, not realizing that the weaponry comes from the United States. But the, the other number you said, that, that so many are under 21, is also remarkable because this particular war is coming up on 15 years, uh, someone who's 21 would have been six when it started. These are people who haven't known peace at all, have they? No, and it is, again, uh, remarkable that the young people we've gotten to know are so willing to try to experiment with something that's alternative to uh, being trained how to use weapons or being signed up and enlisted in somebody's security forces or somebody's military forces. Uh, and I, I think, you know, Alfred McCoy's research has been so, so important for showing what those alternatives could look like in terms of agriculture. And that's why I'm so impressed with the women in Bamiyan. I mean, the, the answer, it seems to me, for Afghanistan's future is not to make it uh, a user-friendly country through which to build that pipeline you mentioned or uh, in which to develop mining that could pull rare earth minerals out of the ground, but rather to develop the agriculture. Uh, and Alfred McCoy had said some years back, I mean, I, it's not a recent report, and it's too difficult, he told me, to really try to create an up-to-date report, but about six years ago, he wrote that it would cost $34 billion to restore the agricultural infrastructure of Afghanistan. And, of course, $34 billion seems staggering, doesn't it? But um, if you just count what they've spent on their retrograde mission pulling the United States weapons out of Afghanistan, they at one point were predicting $7 billion just to melt down all the tanks. Now, I think they sent some of those tanks to U.S. police departments instead. But uh, another $25 billion to uh, ship all of the United States equipment and troops back to the United States. Well, that's $32 billion right there. It could just about accomplished what Alfred McCoy had said would be needed to you know, clear out the irrigation systems, to plant saplings in orchards, in new orchards, all along the denuded mountainside, and to replenish the blocks. And so, yeah, 
It's a wonderful idea, Kathy, and uh, with the U.S. Army not being able to account for $6.5 trillion, I, th- I think they could find $39 billion if they, if they wanted to. Uh, I, I really look forward to, to hearing more about this and about your recent trip to Russia uh, and other work for peace uh, at Washington at No War 2016. People can go to worldbeyondwar.org to sign up to come or to uh, catch the live stream of that. Thank you for everything you're doing and for coming on Talk Nation Radio. Thanks, David. Bye-bye. This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org. All past shows can be heard at davidswanson.org. Talk Nation Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia and syndicated by Pacifica Network. If you are listening to a non-profit station, please support that station. Talk Nation Radio is funded by contributors at davidswanson.org. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Until next time.